0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. In the Hebrew Bible portion of our Sunday lectionary, we're in the midst of a series of passages from the book of Exodus. We get the sweep of the dramatic story of the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt on through the birth and miraculous rescue of Moses from the river through the uh, calling of Moses, through the escape through the Red Sea, through the wandering in the wilderness. We'll be coming up to that in the next couple of Sundays, the giving of the Ten Commandments and finally the promise of resettlement in the promised land we get all that in the next uh, in the in the 10 sundays starting five sundays ago and uh, the four or so sundays coming up. It's I think perhaps the high point of that liberation story that we have this morning in the recitation of the passage through the Red Sea. In fact, if you've ever been to an Easter vigil, which is the oldest service that we have in our prayer book this passage from the book of Exodus that recounts the passage through the Red Sea is the only reading that is required there are eight readings in that service and the only one that is required is this passage from the book of Exodus which says something not only about how formative it is it is in the Jewish tradition Passover celebrates it every year in the Jewish tradition But how important it is in our tradition as Christians, building on the foundation of our brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith. Now, for some of us, um, we may get in our head the picture of a movie that some of you may have heard of called The Ten Commandments, in which Charlton Heston leads the Israelites through. I mean, Moses leads. (laughs) Moses leads the chosen people of Israel through. The divided waters and while the special effects may seem a little bit corny and primitive compared to our own time, it's still nonetheless a pretty powerful image of liberation. And even though scholars may tell us that it wasn't the Red Sea, the Hebrew actually says Reed Sea, and it probably was a smaller body of water, maybe sort of a swamp a large swampy area that the Israelites went through and it probably could be explained by some easterly wind that blew the water in such a way that the Israelites could walk through and then it was gunky enough so that the Egyptians got stuck there all that aside nonetheless this episode is still a cornerstone the epitome of the character of God in the Hebrew Bible God is a God of freedom a God of freedom a God of liberation the God that we hear about this morning in the gospel reading is a God of forgiveness continuing from last week Jesus expounds on the importance of forgiveness and goes into more detail about the depth and nature and extent of God's forgiveness. You'll recall that last week Jesus gives fairly detailed instructions on how the community is supposed to handle conflict. If this, then this, if this, then this, if this, then this. this, then this step by step. Well, Peter, in his. Inimitable way says, well, how often am I supposed to do that? And Jesus says. Seventy seven times in some translations, it's 70 times seven times, which is really just a poetic way of saying you have to do this all the time. All the time. You have to practice this all the time. And then he tells a story to illustrate the importance of forgiveness. You recall the outline. A king, or in some translations, a lord, is owed 10,000 talents by one of his slaves or one of his servants. Now, 10,000 talents is an unbelievable amount of money. I'll spare you the ancient mathematics involved. But the math says that that's equal to 3,200 Lifetimes of peasant wages even if a peasant wage is not very much 3200 lifetimes that's a little bit of time but the servant is so insistent and so full of apparently repentance that the king, the Lord forgives him this unbelievable, this unpayable this ridiculous amount of money The forgiven slave then leaves the presence of his king, his lord, and runs into a guy who, let's say it was maybe a poker debt. A hundred denarii, by comparison, is less than nothing. And what does the first servant do? He says, I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm going to make you pay me. And if you can't pay me, I'm going to have you thrown in jail. Well, word gets around the community of servants, of slaves, what the first slave, what the first servant has done. And they're not so happy about it. And word gets back to the king and to the Lord. And he summons the first servant back and says, in essence, you know, I can't believe what you've done. And because you've done what you've done, I'm going to turn you over to be tortured until you pay that debt back. Well, knowing how much that debt is, it's sort of assumed that that guy's never going to be out of jail. He's never going to be forgiven. So that's the story. Now, we know that Jesus's parables and sayings are often full of of unlikely or outrageous features, and there are a number of them in this particular passage, but one of the things that's going on, I think, with Jesus in his story is that he's really trying to shake us up to make us uncomfortable, to make us really sort out where we are in relationship with him and, and where we are on our journey and what really is important to really make us question, make us uncomfortable. But most of us don't like that, so we try to kind of put things in little boxes. And one of the ways that we can do that with a story like this is to allegorize it. Makes it more orderly. That is, to make it an allegory, each character in the story stands for something outside the story. So, in this way of thinking, the king is God who controls forgiveness. And the two highlighted slaves stand for People in need of forgiveness, one in great need, one in little need. And the relationship between those two slaves and the greater community that bears witness to uh, and judges how the first slave has misused his forgiveness. This is probably what the writer of Matthew wants us to do is to allegorize the parable, to make it very clear what this parable is supposed to teach. Do you get it? Well, first, we need to say that we probably do get the idea that God's forgiveness is so huge. It's so massive. It's like infinity. This number is so big. We can't hardly even fathom it. It's like the national debt. It's so big. We can't fathom it. It's beyond us. We probably get that on some level. Yet the second bit that I think we may also get, I I know I certainly feel this, is when I get to the end of this story, I think, well, this is a picture of, of kind of a vengeful God who on the face of it allows torture and takes back forgiveness. Here's where the Anglican tradition of using reason to help us interpret strict scripture can help us a bit. Now, this is, may get a little bit technical. Some scholars suggest that Jesus's original story, the way Jesus would have presented it to his hearers, ended with "Should you not have had mercy?" on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you and then that just kind of floats there and we know we kind of complete the end of the story we, we know the answer to that question and it kind of bubbles in us we don't need to be told we kind of make the connection ourselves But this hypothesis suggests that the writer of Matthew added the final two sentences in which the king hands over the slave to be tortured and then explicitly connects the king figure with God. These were not part of the original story that Jesus would have told. But so important was the idea of forgiveness and the practice of forgiveness to the early community of Jesus's followers and the first generations of the church that they added these sentences just in case you didn't get it just in case you didn't get it so this perhaps offers us an opportunity to kind of let go of this picture of a vengeful God that would hand over someone to be tortured and would take back forgiveness it's something that the human writer of Matthew And his community would have maybe added on because they were so convinced of the importance of forgiveness, but I don't want to let us off the hook too easily. I'm happy to accept an interpretation that that keeps God from looking like a vengeful bully, but I want to explore this idea of torture a bit further. As I've already said, this was so, this idea of forgiveness was so important, so central to the Christian message that the early church would go to some extent to to show it, including death. We experience the need for forgiveness, either giving it or receiving it in many ways. We may fail to meet the expectations of ourselves. Others may not meet our expectations for them. We may have experienced terrible even horrific even unimaginable terribly terrible treatment at the hands of individuals or institutions. But there is indeed a way and this is what I think the gospel is getting at. There is indeed a way. That failure to either extend or receive forgiveness traps us in misery, perhaps even a misery that is torturous. That's just the way it is. It's, one of a, it's sort of a natural law. If we hold on to resentment and if we refuse to accept forgiveness that, it, that is extended to us, We trap ourselves in misery. And God, for whatever God's reasons, allows us to experience the consequences of that choice. In the inability to either receive or extend forgiveness, we do live in a kind of bondage. Unable to fully live and love and use the gifts that God has given us. To serve one another, to serve the world, and to give glory to God. But we know from experience how hard it is to give and receive forgiveness. Many times, it's just simply humanly impossible. Which is one of the reasons why I'm grateful that we get to say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. Because in that prayer, we ask for help to both give and receive forgiveness now I want to point out that forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation it's not the same without forgiveness reconciliation is impossible but forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation it's possible to forgive someone without being in a reconciled relationship with them. For instance, the other person may no longer be alive. So you can't be in relationship with them or it may be too dangerous emotionally or physically even to be in relationship with that person or with that institution or we may need to accept forgiveness. And we were able to do that. We're able to let ourselves off the hook, so to speak. Because God has let us off the hook and this other person has let us off the hook. But it may be that we have to accept that it's impossible for us to be in continued relationship with this other person or with this institution. So the relationship is over, but our wholeness is is somehow restored. So I say forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation, although forgiveness of reconciliation is impossible without forgiveness. I think it all comes back to freedom To freedom the purpose of forgiveness is freedom from the beginning God has wanted us to be free free from the bondage of sin free from the bondage of self freedom to be in right relationship with ourselves with one another, and with God. Freedom to give to the world all that each one of us has to give. The great gifts and talents and love that we have, that we've been given by God, to give to one another, to give to the world, to the glory of God. Amen.